what's involved in the Lord Jesus' work as our great high priest. It's Andrew here. We're running into another episode of Culloden Christian Assembly's Home Bible Study Podcast. Um, you'll know we're studying in Hebrews. We're studying Hebrews chapter 8 today. And we're continuing our little series on Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's a wonderful thing just to focus on the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ in these studies. And we're going to look into Hebrews chapter 8 today. But before we do so, we're just going to commend ourselves to God in prayer. Our Father, we come to you. We pray for your blessing upon us now as we look into your holy word. Uh, we pray that the truth about the Lord Jesus as our great high priest might be a blessing to each one of us just now. In the Lord's name, amen. Okay, so we're looking at Hebrews chapter 8. I'll just read the chapter. Um, I think for the sake of con connection, we'll maybe read the last few verses of chapter number 7. And then we'll run into... Um, an analysis of these, this chapter. It's a beautiful chapter. There's beautiful truth in it. So I hope you can stay with us. Thank you for joining us again. And we trust you'll be blessed by this podcast. Chapter 7 and verse 26. Reading from the New King James Version. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Who is holy, harmless, undefiled separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered himself. For the law appointed as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the Son who has been perfected forever. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises." For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for the second. Because he finds fault with them, saying, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Judah, I should say. Not according to the covenant I have made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be the, their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that he said, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now as with all of our home Bible studies, this uh, comes with a handout. So if you want to go to the podcast site um, 
uh, you'll find a link there that will be able to take you to the PDF of the handout if it is of interest to you. So we're going to focus in on Hebrews chapter 8 today. We've learned so many things about the Lord Jesus up to this point and particularly we've been focusing for the last few chapters on his high priestly, um, his high priesthood. Um, it's interesting because really the focus has been on the qualities of our high priest as we looked at the end of chapter 7 and the other thing is the qualifications of our high priest. That's been integral to what we have learned so far. So we've had uh, in the earlier chapters the, his qualifications and then just at the end of chapter 7 it really focuses in on the character of our high priest himself. But now we're going to expand into his superiority not just as to his person but as to his service. In doing this the, the writer is going to show that he's not only superior but the sanctuary he serves in is superior, for instance. And the sacrifice he's brought is superior. And the covenant he mediates is superior. Now, you'll notice this kind of overarching theme of, of the high priestly work of the Lord. Um, I, I've given a, a division, uh, chapter 7, a greater salvation. There's a focus on salvation in chapter 7. There's a contrast between two uh, priesthoods. A greater supply. There's there's this contrast in, in chapter 8 between two covenants. And then in chapter 9 there's a greater sanctuary. There's a contrast between two places. And then in chapter 10 there's a contrast between the old uh, covenant sacrifices and the the final sacrifice. The, the one offering for sins uh, forever. And so we have a greater sacrifice. And so the, the focus is really being expanded. And in each case we're seeing that the old covenant. When we look at it. We see that it was limited. And it was only uh, for a temporal uh, time. And yet we find that if we look through it and past it. And beyond it we find that it points forward to something that is greater. Imagine a signpost. And this seems to be what the, hype, uh, what, what the Hebrew writer is really emphasizing again and again. Look at the Old Testament as a signpost to what we, the greater and better things in the new. Look at the Old Covenant and see it as for what it is, a signpost. Interesting, helpful in a certain way, but it looks beyond that, past the shadow to the substance, past the type to the anti-type. Uh, and so we have to do that. When we come to these passages, we have to understand this is how to look at the Old Testament, to look at the Old Covenant. We see many beautiful things in it that point to God's character, the point to the coming Christ, but then we've got to see past it. And these Hebrew Christians were in danger of focusing on the shadow and not getting to the substance in a real way. So I give several questions. They're at the bottom of the uh, first page of, of the handout. We'll come back to some of these uh, in, a, in a few minutes. I want to simply break down the chapter into the following sections. The superior priest. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that as verse 1 to 3, although you could argue that it's just maybe the first verse. Then we have his superior ministry. From roughly verse 3 to verse 6. And then finally we have the superior covenant. Verse 7 to 12. The superior priest. You'll, you'll see in verse number 1 a little expression. Such a high priest. 
such a high priest. That's not the, that, the first time that that statement has been made, but such a high priest. So he's going to tell us the kind of high priest we have in the first verse or two. Then when he comes on to the superior ministry, the focus is really a statement that's made in verse number two. He's a minister of the sanctuary. So he has a superior ministry. How does that come out? We'll look at that in the next few verses. And then there's a third, uh, if you like, role of the Lord that's emphasized here. And it's emphasized at the end of verse number six. And it leads us into the, the third section. And he's spoken there as the mediator of a better covenant. And so the focus is on the superior covenant in the last little section. So let's look at these three sections together and Hopefully we'll, we'll find some um, beautiful truths as we go through. The superior priest in the first few verses. In this section we're going to see the person and his work. Let's look at that. Uh, verse 1 to 3. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest. Seated on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's really his person that's being focused in on. And then we'll see his work in the rest of verse 2 and 3. A minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. For ever a priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. It's necessary for this one to have something to offer. So, so in this first section, the superior priest, we have a focus on his person and on his uh, work. Let's think of the first little bit, his person. We have such a high priest. Now, if you come back to the end of chapter uh, 7, you'll notice that exact same expression at the end of chapter 7. Um, I've put it in the handout um, from verse number 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us. And then it goes on to emphasize um, something of, of the greatness uh, of, of our high priest as his personal character. Uh, look look at it with me. Chapter 7 and, and verse number um, 26. He is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. So this is the character of our high priest that's being emphasized. Um, and, and we have his unique character really brought to the fore at this point. Uh, what This is the kind of high priest that we need, another version has it. Holy, innocent, undefiled, and so on. Holy is the thought of, of a personal holiness and purity. It's, there's a different word for being separate that's often used in the New Testament. But this word has the thought of inner purity. And he is personally holy in that sense. Innocence is from a word, ekakos, and, and kakos is the word for badness or malice, if you like. And, and, and it's saying there's no badness in him. There's nothing uh, faulty or flawed or sinful or malice or crafty in him. There's no, uh, there's no nature uh, problem, as it were, in, in him. He is innocent or harmless. He is undefiled unspoiled, un, unsoiled by the sin around, separated from sinners. He's now in his own sphere at God's right hand in the holiest, Holy of Holies. So, so this character of our Lord makes him distinct from uh, many of the priests in the Old Testament. They had an outward show of this in their garments. You know, the garment represents the character, of course, and, and, and in a sense is meant to reflect the character of, 
um, in, in the Old Testament. So often an outward, a garment, it, it told us something about um, what God expected the character of someone to be like. And you'll remember the high priest of old, he had this this beautiful garment of glory and beauty and, and each facet of it was to tell something of what God expected in his high priest and what he would only find ultimately in the Lord Jesus. So he has this unique character, the Lord Jesus. He is the anti-type of all those types and shadows in the Old Testament. Um, it's interesting because when you look at the priests in the Old Testament, you see men that were flawed and failing and sinful and at times bad. Um, you think of of the, the, the chief priests that were around, the high priests that were around at the time of the Lord's death. You think of the, the, the hatred that was stirring up inside them and yet they would put on an outward show of being holy and yet inwardly they would um, be like, as the Lord says, outwardly like white sepulchres and in, inwardly uh, full of dead men's bones and so so this unique character that we have on our high priest he is personally holy and free from malice and not defiled by sin uh, around him of course you remember eli um away back in in first samuel uh, 4 isn't it um before then when, when eli uh, wouldn't recognize hannah's um Hannah praying thought that she was drunken and and you'll remember all the problems in his family and he was anything but undefiled and and he he was affected in his personal um as it were awareness of the situation and this is not true of our high priest he is not like that when we come to him we know that he knows all about it and yet his personal character is pure he's a unique sacrifice the next little section tells us that at the end of uh, chapter 7. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do. First for their own sins and for those of the other people. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. So he's offered himself for for the people. And he didn't just offer a sacrifice. He offered himself because he is pure. And every sacrifice needed to be pure. So we see again an emphasis on his purity. He's the once for all self-offering the writer doesn't need to point out that the Lord didn't need sins atoned for. For he said this in 26. He said he's holy. And in 27 he says he's the offering. Then he emphasizes his unique quali qualifications and fitness. His eternal fittedness we might say. Contrasting the law with the oath. Contrasting many men with the one son. Contrasting the weak. Those who have infirmity. That was the old order of things. The law appointed as high priests, men who are weak, those who have infirmity, they're compassed with weakness. But the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appointed the son who has been perfected forever. So he is eternally fitted to be our high priest. So this is the one, such a high priest that became us. So the emphasis is first on uh, his um his his person and his character such a high priest became us um you'll notice his posture as well by the way it's interesting to see it tells us at the sort of chapter and uh, number eight that he is um 
he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. We have him seated. In contrast to the activity of the high priest, you never learn or read of them in that sense that they were meant to sit down when they were in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, when they were involved in that work. They were constantly on their feet. They, the, the priests were involved in, in the sacrificing and they were involved in the service of the, the tabernacle and so on. But, but this one's different. He has gone into the inner true sanctuary. You notice that in verse 2. We'll come back to that in a minute. He, he's gone right into the very immediate presence of God. And you can imagine those, an Old Testament high priest who couldn't, he could only go into the immediate presence of God once a year. And it was an earthly sense. And it was, it was scary for him because uh, the, the stipulations were that he die not. If he did anything that wasn't right, he could expect the ultimate punishment because here he was an un unholy man Yes, he'd been give, he'd made sacrifice for his own sins at the start before he went in. And there he goes into the immediate presence of God. He had to do X, Y, and Z that he die not. And you can imagine what it was like for him in fear and trembling to go back past that final curtain into the holiest of all, just in that one day in the year, the Day of Atonement, and to do something in there. And to be in the immediate presence of God in that temporal, earthly sense. And yet, here this one that we have, he's gone into the immediate presence of God and he seated himself there at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, not on earth, not in the tabernacle, not in the holy place in Jerusalem, no, in the heavens. And so this is the nature of our high priest that's being brought out again. Uh, and then it goes on and says... Um, of course, we have his place there at, at the right hand. He is seated. We have his posture. Our work has been completed. He's there. He can go into the immediate presence of God because of his own personal holiness and because of the work he has completed. We'll come on to the work now. You'll notice the second part of this superior uh, priest uh, section, verse number two and three. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. And so again, this is emphasizing not true in contrast to false, but true as to the real meaning behind something. You see, the Old Testament tabernacle or, or, the, or even the temple that was there in Jerusalem when the Lord was here, they were just figures of the true. They were only pointing forward to the real true thing. You'll remember the Lord Jesus spoke about being the true bread that's come down from heaven. Now, it wasn't that the manna that came down in the Old Testament, this is John chapter 6, it wasn't that the manna that came down wasn't true bread in one sense, but it was pointing forward to the true bread, to the anti-type of bread itself, the true satisfaction. And so here we have the true tabernacle, the one that's a real thing set up by God for approach to him, not by, by man. And so here we have the Lord going into the immediate presence of God in the true sense of the word. Uh, which the Lord erected and not man. And so here we have, again, an emphasis which is being placed uh, on this new sanctuary. Uh, and he's going to develop this in chapter um, 9. Uh, and then he's going to emphasize the sacrifice. He's kind of mentioned the fact that the Lord is now seated and that he's going to say in these next two verses that 
every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And he'll say this one will have something to offer. So so a sacrifice, that's what he'll deal with in more detail in chapter 10. But what he's going to focus in for the rest of this chapter is on the superiority of of his ministry um, and particularly as a mediator of the better covenant. So we'll come into that in a wee second, but we'll, we'll deal a wee, with a wee bit uh, of his the superiority of his ministry now. So having looked at the superior priest, we've tried to briefly look at some of the points in there, we have the superior ministry now. He's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Look at verse number four. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since... There are priests who offer gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses, who was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, he says, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you to the in the mount. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Okay, so so what it's saying is that if the Lord was an earth, he wouldn't be a priest. Now, we know that he wouldn't be a priest because he didn't come from the priestly tribe. That that will be brought out in another stage of his arguments. He, he, the Lord sprang out of Judah. He didn't come from Levi. So uh, it was important, if you were a Levitical priest, that you came from the tribe of Levi. And of course this was important that the kingly tribe Judah and the priestly tribe Levi were separate and distinct. And, and this is really important in the Old Testament because there were times where kings tried to become priests as well. You'll remember Uzziah in the year that King Uzziah died. You'll remember why he died. He died because he went into God's immediate presence as good king in the sense that he was successful. He was lifted up in pride and he thought, I'm going to offer. And, and he was told not to, but he says, I want to be a priest as well as a king. And he took upon himself a role that was not given to him by God. God had split priesthood from kingship and there was a reason for it because that was reserved for the messiah it tells us in zechariah that the messiah in the coming day is going to be a priest upon his throne and you remember isaiah chapter 6 in the year the king uzziah died what did he see he saw the lord high and lifted up upon his throne where was that it was in the holy place and so we have a king in uh, the holy place and so the only one who is truly allowed to be that king priest is the Messiah, the Son of God. And, and again, that's pictured and brought to us in some measure in the Old Testament. But when the Lord was here on the earth, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. And so he wasn't involved in the Levitical system of offering. He wasn't a priest. He didn't go into the immediate sanctuary or anything like that. That wasn't his rule. You say that that's strange. Not really. Because you think of it. If he were on earth, it says here, he would not be a priest. Since the priests who offer gifts according to the law, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Now, let's just think about that for a little minute. When I was a, a little boy, I, I played with, with cars. Just little tiny matchbox cars. And that was a fit and appropriate for the time. However, you wouldn't really expect me to be going round when I was 20 and could drive my own car that, that I would spend my time with a little shadow and copy of the real thing. 
You see, the priest on earth was focusing on the little copy. That's what, that's what it's saying here. It was a copy of the real thing. It was a shadow of the real thing. And he goes on to explain that. He says in verse number uh, 5, For he said, and God said to him, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mind. So there was a, a, a pattern, a, if you like, a, a, a set of instructions given to Moses. And, and there Moses then translated them into the tabernacle. And of course the Lord overruled in that. But it was just a little small copy of a bigger real thing. And so when the Lord was here, you wouldn't expect the one who is the true priest, the one who is our high priest, the one who is from a different type of priesthood, not the Levitical priesthood, which was associated with the copy, but the Melchizedek priesthood, which is associated with the real thing, not the law, but the oath. You, would, you, would, you wouldn't expect him to go into the small copy of the thing. That's why the Lord wasn't associated in that way with the, the, the temple and, and the inner shrine of the temple, if you like. But now, you see, he has a more excellent ministry. He's gone into heaven itself. And so this was important for these Jewish Christians to understand this. That, you know, that, old, that box of gold that was there in Jerusalem that was so outwardly precious to the Jewish people and, and, and drew out so much uh, love and, uh, and, and, and desire after. It was really only a small matchbox copy of the original. It was only a small thing. A copy of a copy, actually, if you look closely at this text. And... In contrast, the Lord Jesus, the one that they're now called upon to serve and go after, he has actually been made the high priest of the real thing. The real thing. And it goes on and says, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. And then it says, inasmuch as he's also a mediator of a better covenant. Now he's going to emphasize something more, another aspect of truth. That is really important. So we're going to come on to that for the last little bit now. We're going to look not only at the superior priest, such a high priest, not only a superior ministry, a minister of the sanctuary, but he has associated with this, he's a mediator of a better covenant, a superior covenant. Okay? So that's this is going to be our last uh, little section for today. The superior covenant. Now the writer has a habit of doing this where he, he drops something and then he'll lift it up a wee while later and he'll drop it again and then he'll expand it later on. Um, Paul does that in some of his writings uh, as well. But you'll notice it, he mentioned the ministry minister of the sanctuary in verse number 2 and then he's developed that a little bit. He's just told them a bit about the fact that this was true and that when he was here he wouldn't have been associated with the, the small thing but now he's associated with a bigger ministry. Um, now he's going on to speak about the mediator of a better covenant at the end of verse number 6 and he's, he's just then going to expand on the better covenant he says for if the first covenant had been faultless then no place would have been sought for the second now this is a rather obvious point that he's making at this this juncture he says why is there a second covenant why is there a replacement covenant that is made and it clearly is a replacement look from verse number 8 He's quoting uh, Jeremiah 31. Why is it that this replacement covenant would be made if the first one was sufficient? 
That's the point that he's going to really emphasize at the beginning. We really must never forget that the main purpose of the Hebrew writer is to prove conclusively that Christ and Christianity is infinitely superior to Judaism. So we will argue from the lesser to the greater again and again. He'll point out the inferiority of the old and point to something superior that's found in Christ and in Christianity. Now, what are the two covenants that we have in, in, in focus here? You'll see from the, the words that we read that it's to do with the covenant that was given to them in the day that he, they were taken out of the land of Egypt. Um, that, that was, of course, the Mosaic covenant. We'll think about that for a minute. And what's the covenant he's quoting to them about now from uh, Jeremiah 31? Well, that's the new covenant. Now, he's really going to prove the superiority of one of these over uh, the other uh, one. So that's the point that he wants to make. So if we go back to Exodus chapter 19, this is what we read when they come towards Mount Sinai. The Lord has brought them out through the Red Sea. He has redeemed them to himself and he's going to make them his covenant people. And this is what he says. Uh, Moses went up to God, verse number three, and God called to him from the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, Tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. Where all the earth is mine. Now notice, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. This is a contract. If you do this, then you shall be a tre special treasure to me. So it, it involves the obedience. It involves the constant adherence to the terms of this covenant. Now this is a covenant that's not unlike a lot of other covenants that were made about this time in history between uh, a, a ruling king um, a that, that has maybe conquered a new land and set up a covenant with a contract with the people of that land. And this follows a, a similar pattern as those covenants do. And in other words, this is, this is a relationship that's being established between this nation, the nation of Israel, the people uh, of God in that sense, outwardly, symbolically redeemed, and God himself as their king. Uh, and so God sets it up in this way. If you do this, then I will do this. In other words, you have to hold your end of the bargain. This is what's known as a, a bilateral covenant. A covenant of two parties. If one party breaks it, the other party walks away from it in that sense. That's just the nature of the contract. If one breaks, the other can walk away. Now, the people answered and said in verse number 8, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And of course you'll, you'll remember what happened over the next few chapters until chapter 24. Um, we've got in chapter, for instance, chapter 20, we've got the Ten Commandments. Um, chapter 21, we've, we've got emphasis on um, different social duties and interactions all, all in relation to the covenant right up to 24 where there's um, a, a ceremony which is the the kind of ratifying of that covenant where, where the blood is sprinkled on the book and the people and so on and and really this is what we're coming to here the old covenant was a covenant of law 
It was a covenant where God said, you do this and I will bless you. If you don't do this, I will judge you. Um, I will set aside that covenant. So there's a sense in which it was a, a covenant that really brought judgment upon the people if they wouldn't obey. Now that's very different, as you'll see from these verses, about the new covenant. It's very different in lots of ways because God takes out their obligation and he makes what's called a unilateral covenant. A covenant where he promises to bless them. And if they come into the terms of that covenant, they are under his blessing forever. And so this is what we read. Let's read it together again in, in light of what I say. God is promising them the old covenant, as far as it was concerned, the law. It only brought judgment upon them because they were weak. And therefore they couldn't keep their side of the bargain and it became a judgment to them. But now this new covenant is going to be different. Behold, the days are coming, verse number 8, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with them, uh, with their fathers in the day that I took them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, said the Lord. They broke their side of the deal. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their mind and write them in their hearts. Now that's different, isn't it? You remember the old covenant? God wrote those laws on tables of stone. But that's not the point now. It's being written, these laws are being written in their minds and their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, you remember the old covenant, it says, if you do this, you'll be a special people to me. You know, so it was, the, the relationship between God and the people was linked in with the Mosaic covenant. And so we'll come on further in the Old Testament. Uh, and it'll tell us in Hosea that God says, you're not my people. You're not my people. You're not beloved. Uh, why is that? Because they have broken the covenant. But what kind of covenant will this be? Different. Not only will God put his laws in their mind and write them in their heart, but I will be their God. They shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor. None of his brothers saying, Know the Lord. All shall know me from the least to the greatest. Now you think of that big nation of Israel. They were ceremonially redeemed. They, they were associated with God. They saw outward signs of God's presence. But they didn't have it inward. Necessarily this inward calling after God and desire to do his will and his word. Um, they, they didn't have uh, the law written in their minds and their hearts. They didn't have the special intimate relationship with the God as, uh, uh, as an individual thing. And they didn't know the Lord in the same way as somebody, not, somebody now who trusts the Lord knows the Lord. Okay, and then it will go the next little statement for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lost deeds I will remember no more. That old system constantly brought up to remembrance sins every year. Um, at Yom Kippur, uh, the, the Day of Atonement, there was remembrance of sins made every year without fail. And they were brought face to face with their sins again and again and again. It was a problem. And God says, now this and the new covenant is going to be different. Now the new covenant has a future aspect for the nation, of course. God will 
bring that nation into the good of this new covenant. But when you come to the New Testament, again and again, there's emphasis laid on the fact that the, that new covenant blessings are our blessings as Christians. And this is the very point he's making when he's contrasting Judaism uh, and, and Christianity here. God has done something wonderful and made something that isn't law-based, but is simply based on the grace that's in his person. And he's made promises. It's not, thou shalt, but I will. It's not, if you do this, then you'll have this blessing. It's, I will bless. I will bless my my people. And, and so, if you want to contrast the old covenant, the covenant of Sinai, with the new covenant, that which is made and will be true for in a future day for Judah and Israel. It was important, by the way, in Hebrews that he mentioned Judah and Israel because it tells us that this is a replacement covenant for the old one. The old covenant is associated with a number of things and the new covenant with, with different things. I'll mention just a few for you to go away, write these down maybe, and think about them. The old covenant is associated with darkness and cloud. You remember... It tells us in Hebrews 12 about that incident. When they came to Mount Sinai, there was blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and it burned with fire and there were there's the voices of words and they they couldn't touch that place or else they were immediately killed, thrust through. They, they, there was that sense of God at a distance. There was darkness and cloud. And in the contrast of the new covenant, where, where, where we have God coming out in grace, well, it's you look at Hebrews chapter 1, and we see the Lord coming, and we find out that he is the outshining of the glory of God. And so instead of the, the glory of God hidden behind this cloud, we have the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So darkness and cloud is contrasted with light and revelation. The old covenant is associated with distance. You can't come near. Don't dare come near that mountain. Even when it's set up, you can't come into the inner shrine. Why? Because God's holy. You can't get past that white wall unless you're a priest. You can't go into the inner inner shrine unless you're the high priest and only once a year and exactly the way we say and it's all about distance and the new covenant's all about nearness i want to bring them in and so this priesthood mediated the old priesthood mediated the old covenant they set up that tabernacle they showed for people the reality of god's holiness but the the, the high priest the great high priest that we have mediates, brings to us a new covenant. And that new covenant isn't about distance, but about nearness. It's not about, if you do this, I will do this, which people can never keep, but I will. It's all about blessing and promise from God. It's grace. You see, the old covenant is law. The new covenant is grace. The old covenant is judgment. The new covenant is blessing. Now, I've tried to emphasize this because it helps us to understand uh, all about uh, these things. Now, finally, I think what I should do just before we finish is think about these better 
promises that it are emphasized uh, in this. You'll notice it mentions that the better covenant is established in better promises at the end of verse number six. What are those better promises? Well, we've, we've tried to emphasize them as we're reading down, but maybe picking up on three uh, main ones that are emphasized. Number one, God is going to write his laws not on tablets of stone, an external thing that they can't achieve, but he is going to write his laws on their hearts and in their minds. They're going to want to do his will. You see, the problem is with an, with our old nature, with the sinful fleshly nature we have, we desire not to do those things. We might be awakened in a sense to, to cry after something good, but, but unless God gives us a nature that's different, we will just revert to that old nature, that old sinful uh, characteristic of the flesh. Uh, and so we, we come to Second Corinthians and chapter 3 and, and Paul is writing to these Christians and he has been telling them about some false teachers that are coming among them emphasizing the old covenant and saying we are following the law we're following uh, circumcision we're going and and Paul he's not really associated with that and he's saying there listen I'm a new covenant minister I'm associated with grace and the glory of grace is so much greater you read it in 2nd Corinthians 3 and 4 uh, if you get a chance but notice what he says they they were doubting Paul's credentials some of them so he says do we begin to commend ourselves or do we need letters of of commendation to you or from you he says in verse number two you are our letter written in our hearts known and read by all men you clearly are an epistle of Christ ministered by us now listen to this written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God not on tables of stone but on the tables of flesh that is of the heart. So he's saying that they were changed inwardly. They were given a new nature. You remember John chapter 3? The, the, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, should have known that to be in the kingdom, there needed to be a new birth, a birth from above, a new nature imparted, a new life. And of course that's what we have today. And everyone um, who comes into the blessing of that eternal kingdom will have this very blessing. A new nature given to us. And that's what we have. These these people in the Old Testament, they might have had the odd desire after God, but they didn't have a nature that would follow after him hard. It wasn't, wasn't that they'd been given that inner ability, um, this divine nature to do things that are right, but we have that. That's the first thing we've been given, that uh, divine nature. But then we also have a, a firm relationship with God and knowledge of God. I will be their God, they shall be my people, they all shall know me. And of course, we many people know about God, but, but you know when you meet someone who knows that God. And this is a wonderful thing again, that's that's central to Christianity all those Jews from all different tribes they didn't know all know the, the Lord in their hearts they didn't really know him uh, they knew about him they maybe saw some of his works but to be part of that old people of God in that outward sense you didn't need to have 
personal relationship with the Lord. And so this is different now. This new covenant being mediated to us by the Lord Jesus Christ, not only does it give us an inner inclination to obey, but it gives us this firm relationship with God, a knowledge of God, and we know him and we are his people. And finally, the other thing that the Lord brings to us through this relationship is the forgiveness of sins. That's how you can have this relationship, this close relationship with his people because their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more forever how can he say this well of course we're going to find out in chapter 10 it's all based on the sacrifice that the Lord made but so you can see how superior the work as a mediator of the new covenant the Lord is in our lives now we have other blessings for instance in a future day, Judah and Israel will come into these blessings. They'll know the nation will be born in a day. They'll be given this new life. Um, they, the spirit of the living God will write in their hearts. They, they, they will experience what it is to know the Lord in, in, in a relational sense. They will know what it is to have their sins forgiven. Uh, but they will not be in the same intimate relationship that we have in the New Testament church sense of the word. What we look upon God as our Father. We have been brought into infinitely more blessings than this, but this is central and key to the blessings that we have in Christ. And so we have these new covenant blessings. We have grace blessings. God has come out to us and he has blessed us. May the Lord help you this day to appreciate what you have in Christ. That, may, that you might understand that we have such a high priest. And his personal character. That he is a minister of a far greater sanctuary. A true tabernacle. Which the Lord pitched. That he is the mediator to us. And he brings these blessings. That's the thought in a mediator. Go between. He brings these blessings to us, the blessings of a new covenant, grace blessings, forgiveness of sins. And even when we stumble, we know that there's a way back. Why? Because God said, through this one, your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more. Thank you for listening. Lord bless.